goal is to show people something they don't normally see. The style is that holy grail that everybody's like, oh, I gotta find my style. No, if, if you wanna make a small uh, small fortune, uh, start with a big <laughs> big fortune, you have to count that it will, it will take five to 10 years before you can uh, you know, make decent money unless- Hello, fellow photographers. In this episode, I'm talking with Dotan Sagi about his photography journey, photography projects, published books, Leica cameras and much more. My name is Martin and this is a podcast about photography where we explore distinct worlds of photographers, their photography journeys and what we can learn from that. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Make sure you're subscribed if you want to be notified when I post a new episode. And also there is one thing I would love you to do. I would be very thankful if you could go and give this podcast five star rating and a review. If you like this content, and you think other people might enjoy it as well, feel free to take a screenshot and throw it out on your Instagram story or share it with your friends. Dotan was also very kind and made a special discount code for his street photography masterclass for our viewers and listeners. Use about 20 to get a discount when joining Dotan's masterclass. All the information can be also found in the description. Now, without any further ado, let's talk about photography. My guest today is street and documentary photographer Dotan Sagi. Thank you for joining me, Dotan. How are you doing today? Good, Martin. It's great to be on your show. Um, I'm great. Thank you for coming. Uh, let me start Thank with a little recap of your photography career. You had been taking pictures for over 20 years as a hobby when you decided six years ago to transition to professional photography. Um, That's now correct. looking back after those six years, was everything as you planned was what idea did you have at the beginning and how do you see it now? Oh my God. Uh, no, it's not as I, I'm, I don't think I planned anything <laughs> for one. Uh, I, it was really to, to have fun. Like I wanted to just dedicate more time to my passion for photography, which I had had along, but hadn't had as much time for. So my first goal was just to have fun with it. I, I wasn't, yeah, I had already done, I had had my successful career in another field in technology. And I, I wasn't really, I didn't have much expectation for, for the photography side. I, I just wanted to have fun with it and see where it could take me. Um, I didn't, I mean, if I look back, it's it's gone extremely, uh, I guess, smoothly or fast or however you want to put it. I, I've I've done a lot more than I thought I would do in this amount of time. So uh, it's been it's been very successful from that standpoint and 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 the fun standpoint as well. I've had fun in every project that I've that I've picked um, and 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 done and and it keeps going to this day. I'm I'm uh, I'm just loving the the whole thing. So. <laughs> And That's, it actually pairs well with my with my second question, uh, because yeah. a lot has changed in documentary photography over time and how magazine works now. So I'm wondering, is photography career doable if you are not transitioning from another successful career? Right. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of many documentary photographers out there uh, who shoot for Magnum and National Geographic, and some of them I've become friends with. And, and uh, it, it's, it's, 
incredible what they're able to do and, and how they're able to make a career out of it. It is, I have to say, doing it, you know, the, the, I guess the normal sort of first career way is extremely difficult and you have to, uh, you know, be ready to, to make a lot of sacrifices, travel a lot, be very flexible with your, you know, having a family that's, you know, very understanding or not having a, a family at all and just kind of pushing that back to, for, you know, further in your life. And, um, it's just really tough. Um, and so I, I didn't do it that route, so I can't speak, you know, to how hard it is. I can just kind of witness how, you know, how tough I can see, uh, it being for, for other people. Um, and it, obviously it's extremely competitive. Like you said, the budgets are, are much less for, for magazines and so on. Um, per, so I can, I'll speak to my side of things, which is not that route. Um, what it allowed me to do at doing it as a second career and not having the financial pressure, um, really, um, I think accelerated things for me because I was able to choose my projects when you're, you know, work for hire a photographer, when you're, you know, purely freelance and you're looking for the next assignment, you have to spend a lot of time um, marketing yourself and uh, trying to get those assignments. And it's 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 really it takes a lot of work, uh, not necessarily behind the camera, really more behind the computer uh, and doing research and so on. And, um, you know, and you encounter a lot of no's, you know, you mostly no's and sometimes yes, but you know, it's, it's, it's hard on, on people. Um, in, in my case, I was able to really choose what projects really were grabbing me. And, and I believe you, know, you tend, I, I, at least for me, I, t I tend to do my best work when I'm really, truly passionate by passionate about a project. And I really wake up in the morning, you know, just craving, you know, to shoot that project. And I have ideas for the project. And it's all uh, a personal decision and, and something I'm, I'm willing to connect with for the long term. And it's much harder to do it. Um, you know, if, if you're, you know, somebody calls you and says, hey, would you uh, be interested in doing this, you know, work on, you know, the, this topic that you've never heard about and <laughs> that sort of thing. That's, that's a lot harder. And, um, and, and, you know, my work may not be as good if I was just working for, you know, somebody else's idea and so on. So, you know, again, I, it brings me back to I admire the work. Like if if I had one name to to pick as like you know kind of my idol and in, in that in that genre of 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 work for hire, you know, and, and people who also had phenomenal personal projects, it would be Jonas Bendixson. Um, he, his work, I mean, he, he works, uh, he's, he's a Magnum photographer now and he's done phenomenal uh, documentary photography work and he's a huge inspiration for, for me. And he's, he's taken that route of first career, um, you know, and he's been able to, to, to climb, um, the, you know, to, to get to Magnum and, and, you I know, doing I what he does. Have, I actually have a print, uh, when, when Magnum wow, runs okay. the square square sale yes so i yes, think yes, i have yes. uh, one of his shots so, so for, for those who haven't checked out his work you should uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you weren't yes. tempted to be uh, to start like an assistant to a photographer or something to you know get into the photography no, i had no but by the i mean i i've been shooting my whole adult life pretty much so um, by the time I decided to make it a, you know, professional thing, I had already, you know, I had done a whole bunch of photography genre, genres. I had gone through, you know, landscape, portrait. I had m many, many phases. 
And I got to street photography and photojournalism, and I decided, you know, I, I kind of had enough technique behind me. Uh, I actually went back to school at first. I went to, uh, to I did a semester at, at the community college uh, for photojournalism because I really wanted to learn the the craft and, and the, the ethics and, and the, you know, how, how you do photojournalism, how, you know, professional photojournalists work. Um, and that's been very helpful. So I, I did a little bit of going back to school, but I then I kind of decided I would learn faster just doing my own projects and, and really just, you know, kind of digging in and, you know, do, doing the work. You know, I think that's that's how you learn the best. And do you believe like nowadays with the art as photography is, is the path of going to the school worth it? Or would you rather prefer um, some self-compiled study as an advice for someone younger, maybe someone who is considering university or something like that? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's hard because I, I didn't go that route. I just did one semester, you know, late, you know, later in life, you know, to get into. I, I think it's good to have some, you know, um, basic training um, if if you haven't acquired that yourself, you know, by books and so on. Everybody learns differently, uh, but I think going to school, you know, to college, paying for a full, you know, price college just to learn photojournalism, I think is hard to, <laughs> at this point. It's you know if you, especially if you take on debt, it, it must be really hard to catch up on that debt because it's very I mean the the people live on very little when they start out um, and especially if they they want to you know progress fast with their career and have some personal projects and it's it's just really hard unless you go into very lucrative you know wedding photography type of thing which is a different sort of path but in photojournalism and documentary. It's really hard to make a living, so going to college, you know, I, I think is hard to justify ju just to, for that. Plus, I think there's really a lot to be said about learning on the job. I think there's nothing that can teach you more than actually doing your own personal project. I actually have, I don't know if you bumped into that video of mine, but I did a B&H uh, um, talk about personal projects and and uh, how to find your own personal project. A lot of people come, you know, come to me asking for, about workshops, and and of course I'll encourage them to do a workshop because, you know, for, first of all I have a methodology that I teach, and and you know I think it's good for everybody to do a workshop every once in a while. But if anything, you know, I'll, I think people do too many workshops. I think, you know, if if they could like maybe alternate, do a workshop and then take on a personal project and see that through before they take the next workshop. I think that's uh, that's a much wiser and, and um, I think that way to learn. And also, I think they also, you also learn more. You get to really apply things as opposed to learning from one person and then learning from another person and learning from, yeah, you know, and you end up with all these tips and you're not quite sure what to do with them. And you never really apply them to, 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 uh, to something, uh, you know, meaty that you can really sink your teeth into. So I highly recommend personal projects. It's actually interesting because uh, I know when you uh, make, when you made the jump, you invested money not only into gear, but mainly in yourself, right? And assuming some of it was like trial and error, what were the most and least impactful investments you made in terms of like workshops and things you, you did investment into yourself? Yeah, so I mean, I took a few workshops. I didn't really make too many mistakes. I mean, I didn't take that many workshops and the workshops that I took weren't that uh, pricey. The, the There's two workshops that I took that I think 
had the most impact on me that were probably also the cheapest ones that I've ever, ever taken, but they were uh, juried. So you had to get in. It was, uh, you know, it was a little, it, it, you couldn't just sign up for them. Uh, it was the Missouri photo workshop, uh, highly recommended. It's a workshop. That's I think the oldest, uh, do photo documentary, uh, workshop in existence there at their 70th or more than 70 years now of, of doing the workshop. Uh, and it's the reason it's called it's run by the University of, of Missouri and it's uh, which has one of the best photojournalism programs. And uh, but you don't have to be a student there. It's a completely separate workshop and uh, it's run in Missouri. And every uh, every year they pick a different small town in Missouri and the workshop goes to that town and documents some aspect of that town. Uh, and when you're there, you have to actually choose. You have to find your topic. So you're like. You know, they throw you into this town and you have to go door to door and figure out what your story is going to be. And then the next four or five days, you shoot that story uh, and you have coaches and, and the, the faculty is amazing. You know, they're from like National Geographic and Washington Post and New York Times. And I mean, it's just uh, it's amazing from to learn from these people. So that's one. And, and that one is practically free. I think it was high, heavily subsidized and. Um, really not not expensive at all. Another one is the Eddie Adams workshop, and uh, Eddie Adams is the legendary uh, Vietnam, you know, photojournalist. You know, he worked all his life in photojournalism and has this very famous photo of the Saigon execution, uh, which everybody knows. You know, the gun to the head oh, thing. Oh yeah, that's fine. Uh, yes, so he he created this workshop. Uh, he passed away a while ago now, but his wife still runs the workshop. And it's in upstate New York. And they, they actually, that workshop is free. They invite you, have just have to pay for your way in. But they host you and they feed you and they, you know, it's, and same thing. It's the, the roster of, of faculty is just amazing. And the, the tough thing is they only pick 100 people every year worldwide. And you have to, you know, some people apply several years in a row to, to get in. But um, if you're really interested in photojournalism, this is another one that's, you know, You'll meet incredible people, and so those were great. Um, I, I, the mis no, you asked also for mistakes that I made. <laughs> um, I'm not going to cite the photographer's name because it's a photographer that I, I, I love the work with, uh, the work of, and I, I don't want to tarnish his name or anything. But some, I, my bit of caution, I guess, when you pick a workshop is pick a workshop that uh, is not only by someone you admire the work of, but also that you know. Uh, really enjoys teaching and has something, you know, and really knows how to teach because it's not the same skill set. You know, you can be an amazing photographer, but some of these photographers are not really people person and they don't really love teaching. They teach because they have to and to make a living and it's, you know, it's important for their livelihood, but it's not something they really love doing. And so my advice, if you pick a famous photographer to have a workshop with, make sure it's a famous photographer who also loves to teach. And there are there are some. Uh, this particular one that I went to uh, to the workshop with was not one of them. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and nowadays, how, you know, um, having been to that many workshops and learning so much, how do you keep you know, learning and educating yourself, what, what works for you now? Because I can imagine that, you know, 
once you learned the basics, you didn't need to, you know, learn, uh, learn them again, right? So what do yeah. you do now to, you know, improve your photography? I mean, at this point, I, I really do projects. Uh, I pick projects that I find myself uh, passionate about and also that I think might be, uh, you know, challenges, new challenges that I, I can grow from. So, um, I mean, I'll give you an example. Right now I'm doing a project that's a little bit outside my comfort zone and, and my usual, you know, street photography that, that some people might know me for. Uh, I'm, I've, I live part-time now in the mountains in, uh, um, in the Eastern Sierra of California. So okay. uh, Mammoth, Mammoth Lakes, exactly. So, the, so I've, I've been looking for projects around here and um, I found this project in the ghost town uh, that I've been shooting, uh, which is, you could argue, is like on the edge of street photography because there are streets. It's a ghost town and there's still buildings. And, I saw it on your Facebook. Kind oh, of like, okay. And also on your Instagram. So, okay. Kind of yeah, I've been like posting lately. Catching traces of human, in, of, of, of people, right? Exactly. It's it's about people, but with no people in the photos. Uh, it's about people who live there and um, the landscape that they lived in, as well as the interiors of the homes that they lived in with all those objects that are left behind. So it's about traces of people more than it is about the actual people. So it, it's very different from the work I've done before, and it deals with reflections and glass and things like that. So I'm just kind of stretching my, you know, uh, the the boundaries of, of what I was, I've been shooting in uh, because, uh, you know, just, Picking a new project that's just a little bit different. And then so, you talk uh, so about, that's what, sorry. Then you talk about your work um, with someone. Do you, you know, take a critique or something? Yeah, I do. So I, I do share the work with some peers. You know, there's some people that you know I've connected over the years at, at different uh, events. You know, at Paris Photo. At uh, 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 there's different uh, art book. You know, art fair, art book fairs, and um, different uh, portfolio reviews and things like that. So I, I have a you know bunch of different people that I've you know been connecting with and sharing my work, and they share their work with me. And so it's it's nice to be able to get sort of feedback, also publishers and and things like that. So I, I tend to when I first start a project, I'm not quite sure about whether it's worth doing and what people will think and so on. I tend to share pictures and get feedback that way. And it's, yeah, it is really important to have to kind of build that little community of people that, that you trust and that you trust also not to be too nice, you know, to, to you. Like I, I know those are the, I, I tend to send this to people who are tend to be not necessarily critical, but will give me their fair, you know, their, their honest opinion about, about the work. And maybe some tips about where to take it or, you know, things I haven't thought about. Yeah, it, it's really so that that's another way I learn. And then another way, frankly, I mean, when things come up, like, uh, again, I'm going to cite the same guy's name, Jonas Bendix. And uh, Magnum has those um, $100 uh, uh, online. workshops. Yeah. Yeah. Online online classes. And some of them are not worth the 100 bucks, frankly. Uh, I mean, they're, you know, it's nice to watch them and 
you get all inspired and everything, but they don't teach you that much. Jonas Bendixson has one with them that I highly recommend. Everyone who wants to do documentary, he just spells it out. Like he's talking about his technique for different, you know, how to find projects, how to how to execute them. You know, That's so I, I new, right? It is fairly new, um, and it, I the reason I got it is because I love his work, okay. and I know he's a very good teacher, and he's very candid and honest about you know, his own process and how he feels. And like, he's not, um, you know, he's not trying to elevate himself. He's just telling you how it is. And uh, so that that's also very helpful. And I, you know, whenever I find things, it's not often that something things like that pop up, but, uh, you know, that for a hundred bucks is a steal. So yeah, I, I've I got the street photography one, which is more like uh, through different genres. Yeah. And every photographer has like, I don't know, 10 minutes. And that's more yeah. like to I would say it's still worth it for hundred bucks. It's uh, but but it gives you more like an overview uh, of yeah. the genre. There's not a practical thing that you can. I mean, it's more inspirational and and informative. Like you, if you you're new to street photography and you want to educate yourself, it's a good way to do that. But uh, if you already know a lot about street photography and you're already pretty advanced in your technique, I would say it's probably not worth the, you know, it, it's borderline. I would say it's it maybe just you, worth it. It shows you the style, like you can see Martin Parr right. you know, with his flash or right. with his zoom lens right. or other people. That's right. Okay. That's right. Uh, but what, what I enjoy, I mean, this is one thing I've been doing myself as a, as a teacher when I teach workshops and I have an online masterclass and I'm working on uh, maybe publishing a, a book about my methodology. I look for people who actually give you not just inspirational, like, you know, sort of be yourself. wishy wash <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Be yourself, trust your instincts, you know, yeah. get out there, you know, that, I mean, it's nice and we all need that from time to time, but, but I, what I try to do is really give people a method, you know, like you get out in the street, here's what you do. Here's your, how you find your subject. How you, here's how you know if this is a, a, a scene that's going to work out or has no chance of working out. Here's how you approach the scene. Here's like I give them a methodology that they can go and follow. Um, and not and so what I often see people do and I have a whole bunch of books you know that that are like that it's either inspirational like you mentioned or it's a series of tips like um you know if this then that kind of thing oh, okay like, if you're in the situation you know then you you choose this lens and you shoot it this way if this then, and then you have to keep in you know on your mind like this huge laundry list of like all these situations and and it's also not bearable for like I've seen students, you know, kind of go through this and the same time they read it, they, they've already forgotten it and then it doesn't do any good. So I, I try to really have a method that people that's easy to remember and people just can follow it. And so that they're not lost when they're in the street, they know what to do next. OK, that's the yeah, that's so, the key for me. Uh Actually, I wanted to ask you about this. I know that when you teach the workshops, you teach uh, different methods of pursuing a scene, right? Can you tell me a little bit That's more right. about those and why are those important? Yeah, I mean, so there are, and we're talking about the framework of street photography purely here. Um, there are like three or four different types of situations that I've sort of categorized in, in my method. And depending on which category you, 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 your subject falls in, there's a different approach that you take. So 
when you know so i'll i'll give you an example one way of of shooting street photography um w one of the methods or one of the types of, of situations is to to see a character so if you see a character and character can be defined as somebody dressed funny somebody acting in an interesting way somebody with a really cool you know, dog, <laughs> it could be, or it could be, you know, it could be a child that's like, you know, just, you know, playing with, you know, and, and just um, really stands out in the street. Any, any of those are, in my mind, they're categorized as characters. And if I see, so what I teach my students is, let's say you walk, you're walking down the street and one of the situations you can encounter is that you you bump into a character, you see a character. Now that character is not necessarily going to be exactly when, where you want them in terms of what's behind them, the background, what you can layer, and they're not necessarily going to be at the peak of their, you know, of a moment. Like typically, characters lend to lend themselves to moments because they're characters, so they, you know, their moments happen around them, uh, or they make they they actually make moments happen, um, but. When you bump into that person, it's very unlikely that you'll be exactly there at the right time for a moment with the right background and so on. So the thing you to do when you see a character is you follow them. <laughs> and I, the follow thing can sound creepy. Um, it doesn't have to be. So often, you know, in my case, most cases when I follow somebody, I will actually make contact with that person first and give them, you know, a heartfelt um uh, compliment. compliment about, yeah, about what, it, like, they have a great hat. So I'll, you know, I'll, I'll tell them great, you know, great hat. Where do you get this hat? And I just like to start chatting them up about what first drew me to them in a very heartfelt way. So it doesn't feel fake at all. It's not, and it is not fake. It's really, I'm, I'm being honest that I, I, they caught my eye because of something and I'm telling them what it is that caught my eye, um, which there's really nothing wrong about that. And it, usually a character like that, the reason they're wearing a hat is they want to get the compliments. So they're very happy for me to like come up to them and give them a compliment. And so typically I'll, you know, connect with them. I'll establish a little bit of trust. And then I'll, the next, you know, when I see that, um, you know, there's enough trust established, I'll ask them if I can follow them around and, um, I'll ask them to completely ignore me, you know, uh, which sometimes is hard for them, but after a while it's, they really do it. Like they, kind of forget I'm there. Uh, so it actually is, you know, um, genuine, you know, in, in, in their, like, they're, they're not pretending that I'm not there. They're actually forgetting that I'm there. And, um, yeah, and I'm, I'm, I have the, uh, they're okay to, to follow them around for, for a while. And I, sometimes I also offer them to share the pictures with them. Uh, not sometimes, always, I always, you know, so I'll tell them, look, you know, is it okay if I follow you for a little bit? Um, I'll take some pictures and, uh, this is why I'm doing, sometimes they ask why. So I tell them I'm doing a project about this area and, um, you know, you fit right in and I, you know, so I'd love to have your pictures as part of that project and I'm happy to share the pictures with you as well. And of course, some of them, you know, refuse, but it's a very small percentage. Usually people are very happy about, you know, being the star of the show and getting <laughs> pictures later, you know, what's not to like, especially if they put that hat on that they wanted to get attention, you know, about. So, 
so anyway, so that's that's how that particular technique typically unfolds. And I tend to follow them for, you know, when I ask for permission and they kind of give me the permission, I will take them on their word. And if it's a really good subject that I feel is really going to lead to something good, I can spend, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes, half an hour with that person until they're in the right spot with the right moment and, and something so happens. So that's like uh, instead of uh, working the scene, you are working the subject. I believe that's those right. are the four F's you talked about in your BNH, like fishing, so, following. Uh, yeah. So farming, exactly. And, and then the the yeah. So this is one. This is this was one of the F's. Uh, of course, the, you know, there's more to it, but it gives you a sense of how. You know, for for somebody's in the street, what I find what I find with my students is that. They often will, you know, they'll go out in the street, you know, we'll do a lecture, they'll go out in the street to try to apply things, and they're stuck. They're not sure what to do next. You know, they're overwhelmed, especially I shoot in Venice, and that's usually where the workshops are, in Venice Beach in, the, in California, and they're overwhelmed with, you know, it's just the street is just very active, and there's so many people, and there's some, so much happening, and they're not sure what they're supposed to be doing. So having those four apps and have, for each one having a method, they can decide, I want to go with a character, and I'm going to pick a character out of the crowd and try to do this, or I'm going to do this other thing. And they have, they have a uh, a path basically to, to getting the photos that they want, as opposed to just being lost and being overwhelmed and not knowing what to do. Which one of those four were the most difficult for you? Which one do you think the students have the most troubles with? Yeah, so, uh, so it's a great question. The, the fact that there's multiple ways of doing street photography doesn't mean that everybody has to master all the ways and be comfortable in all the ways. I think it, it it's nice to be able to try all of them to get a feel for them uh, as a student. But I think after a while, you decide that there are some that are more for you than others and that you do better at and that you enjoy more. And it's again, I we started this conversation. I went into photography for enjoyment. And I think we really have to kind of trust our heart in this um, that to do things that are that we enjoy doing, like not force ourselves to do things because Bruce Gilden does them or, you know, Martin Parr does them or, you know, uh, Cartier-Bresson used to do them. That, that, that's it's one thing to admire other people's photography. But you ha when it comes to your own, you have to find what what you love doing. And I think that's what ends up being. I think that's the thing that ends up guiding us to our style. You know, that's the, the style is that holy grail that everybody's like, oh, I got to find my style. No, you, you, you do what you enjoy and the style will find you, I think, is more the, the, <laughs> the way it works. So to your point, though, when you take those four Fs, which are different methods for different ways of doing street photography, um, you know, somebody might find that they really enjoy that connection with people where they love engaging with people and following them and it being all about the person. Other people might be more um, like, uh, I don't know if people know, I mean, he's been very much like in the, uh, you know, in people's mind, on people's mind lately, for good reason is Alan Schaller. Alan mm -hmm. Schaller is another like a photographer. Shooting he like he does. Right? Yeah, black and white photographer. But the stuff he does is much more about compositions and light and waiting, you know, in certain spots for people to pass through and that sort of thing. So that's what I call fishing. 
Cartier-Bresson used to do a lot of that too. And and fishing can be you know great for other types of people who don't necessarily want to approach people, don't want to make contact with people. You know they want to stand a little bit further. They're they're more about waiting and and you know uh, waiting in a certain spot for something to happen. And you know so so it's a completely it can be very meditative and so it's a completely different way of doing it. So. At the end of the day, though, um, you know, each person has to find what works for them and what they enjoy most doing. And it can be also based on the day. You know, like for me, I know sometimes I go out and I'm in a chatty mood and I'm, I want to meet people and I'm excited about chatting people up. Um, I, I'm normally more of an introvert, but sometimes I'm in that more extrovert mode. And I, you know, that's so I do more follows and I do more farming, which is another type of thing that I that, that I explain in my methodology. Um, but other times I find myself like, you know, I don't want to talk to anybody. I feel kind of grumpy. I don't, I don't, so I'll do more. I'm, but I'm aware of that. I'm conscious when I get out on the street, I'm in this mode, I'm going to try to do more fishing. So fishing is done this way. So this is the approach that I'll take and I'll take a completely different methodology. Uh, so I think it's helpful to understand our, to, to be introspective, know what you like to do, what you're enjoying doing, what mood you're in. And then take the method that it will, you know, provide you enjoyment, you know, that day uh, and, and results. So, so that's anyway, that, that, that's what works for me. I like your take on how the photographer shouldn't necessarily be invisible, but can kind of interact with the scene and still get like uh, candid shots after, you know, sticking right. after, after some time. So right. uh, yeah. th that's what you, I guess, that's what you do when you stick with the scene, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's, a, so there's a school of photography, you know, it goes all the way from like some people, th you know, say street portraits are actual street photography and you can pose people and, and, you know, they, some people only take pictures of posed pictures of people in the street and they consider that street photography. I, And then it goes all the way to people say, unless nobody sees you, <laughs> that's, you know, you're not doing street photography and there's everything in between. Um, personally, I, I feel like street portraits are their own thing and they're, I don't really consider that street photography unless they're occasional and it can be interesting, like mixed into regular street photography to have a few portraits. Uh, but if all you're doing is portraits, you're not really doing street photography per se in, in my mind anyway. Um, it's, I think it's great when you can remain invisible. I think it's a great thing to kind of strive for. Um, unfortunately it's not always possible and it always, it doesn't always lead to the best results, uh, in terms of, you know, composition, this, that, and, and it can be just discouraging. You know, I think if, if that's, the ideal that you're kind of grabbing onto and you're like, I'm not going to take any photo unless I'm completely undetected. <laughs> you're going to have a really hard time getting anything good. And then you might not enjoy it as much. You might not go out as much. And anyway, your results are not going to be as, as good. So I think there's a happy medium, um, you know, and I went, you know, to photojournalism school and, and I know all the ethics and everything. I think you can get, um, genuine candid shots after having made contact and in fact when you're doing documentary work as a as a photojournalist 
that's what you do. You have to establish trust with your subjects first, with, with the people that you're photographing before you can take their photograph. And, and um, the key is to, I think it's not to be invisible. The key is to um, manage to become invisible again. <laughs> okay. and, and, and that's, that's an art in itself, like making the contacts, establishing the trust, and then waiting for the moments where people are really not aware of you anymore, or they're not conscious of your presence anymore, and they're they're feeling free to being back to they're being back they're they're going back to themselves and and what they normally would do if you were not there, and th and then you have I mean then it's amazing because then you get to have your cake and eat it too. You you get to be there for the best moments, yet it's completely candid. And those moments to me are like, that's what leads to the most magical photos, because you, you, you can stay there for as long as you want, which is really the, the hardest, you know, it, it's hard in street photography when you just have that one moment and it has to all line up. Uh, and, and, you know, and it does happen. Like the, some of the photos in my Venice book are like that, where I just came across something, it happened, didn't make any contact, got the shot and it was perfect. It does happen. But if I, you know, it would be very limiting if this is all I was doing. Um, I think I need to, you know, it's really nice to be able to complement it with more documentary type work where I do establish contact, but then I, people forget about me and uh, I'm the fly on the wall, you know, becoming that fly on the wall. It's not easy, but it really leads to, to very, uh, it's very productive okay. uh, as, a, as a photographer. And do you have your own yeah. rules of what you, for example, don't photograph, like subjects you avoid? Yeah, I mean, it's the, you know, what people uh, already probably know about by now and so on. It's, it, you know, pe people who are vulnerable on the street and they don't have another place to go, um, talking about homeless people, uh, mentally ill people, you know, um, I, I avoid unless uh, I'm documenting them in a way that is, uh, where I'm engaging with them first in conversation, I'm acknowledging them, I'm learn getting to know them, and then and they're, and they're okay with me photographing them. Um, then then in that case, it's it's okay. And I do have some some images of that in in my book in in uh, in the Venice book. And then the next book, Nowhere to Go to But Everywhere, the the book that I did a couple years ago is a, about a family who lives in a school bus. Uh, so they were not home. I guess they didn't consider themselves home homeless. They were houseless, I guess okay. you could call that. Uh, but it was all about them and how beautiful their life was inside that school bus. So I'm not saying that you should never photograph anybody who doesn't have a home. You should just if, if you do, it, sh it shouldn't be a cheap shot is is my point like you should just you should it should be about them and and it should be a you know something that shows them in a very humane way that people can relate to not just like somebody who's just like you know uh sleeping drunk on the sidewalk and you know it makes an easy shot because they're not going to move and they're not going to come after you and so that's why you take their picture um or even if yeah anyway you, you get my point um <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I think that's, you know, that's really it. You know, you don't want to take advantage of people and you don't want to because it's easy or because, you know, you re it, it, it has to be, uh, uh, you know, it has to be respectful. Um, uh, yeah. And, and there's some photographers I know, like some people like Bruce Gilden sort of stretches the boundaries of that. And 
you know, he's got his own philosophy and he says that he feels connected to these people and that's why he takes their photo and that's his thing. I, it's not, I'm, I'm not really into that. Um, so anyway, every, I think everybody has to kind of find their own ethics at the end of the way, at, at the end of the day, but just uh, my general guideline is just be respectful. Don't take advantage of people. Uh, don't make fun of them, you know, make, make, uh, you know, take photos that you think they'll, they would like, you know, to have. Maybe something you can hang on the wall. Yeah. Th th something th even that the p p people in the picture would hang on their wall, you know, that they would be proud of. Okay. That, that, I think that's a good, that's a good, uh, uh, yeah, a good bar to set. Talking about the rules, this is a question maybe more about like actual photographic rules. Um, how do I correctly break the rules? So I'm in between this, my photo looks as everyone else's and yes. on the other end, uh, I have no idea what I'm doing. So if I yes. want to get, you know, in between, how do I do yes. that? Yeah. It, um, it, so I think with street photography and pretty much any other form of photography, the goal and i think this is what you're getting to here uh, is to show people something they don't normally see if you show them something they see every day like a photo shot at eye level of like just a street scene of people passing by uh, and we see a lot of that on instagram and stuff you know people take those kinds of photos all the time nobody's going to look at that i mean or nobody's going to look at that for more than a second you know before scrolling it's not that interesting why because that's what we see every day i can see it with my own eyes at my own you know five foot whatever uh height and you know it's a dime a dozen it's an easy shot it's not nothing i've never seen so you want to show people something they've that will stop in them in their tracks that that's the that that's a goal that's a but to your point, what, what is a photo that will stop that, that will stop people in their tracks? And that, that's the million dollar question. So um, it, again, you know, back to methodology, the, the, the way I teach thing is, things is that there are criteria for what makes a photo great. Um, of course, you know, then there's always your creativity and how, how you show people something they haven't seen, but there's, there's ingredients that you can put to work in order to show someone some of the, something they haven't seen before. And to me, there's three ingredients to that, to, to, to that formula, to that recipe is design. Um, and this is a whole category that I, there's a lot more methodology behind that, you know, between composition. I mean, there's a very deep topic, but just at the top level, there's design information actually showing like telling people what's happening just so it's and making it clear in the picture what's happening so the person looking at the picture can actually uh derive a story so the the, the information part is about storytelling and then finally if you can add that on top of that there's a moment or emotion that that is stacked on top of that so those are design information and moment are my three sort of building blocks but each one has you know, there's a lot that I teach in, in each one, how to make that work. But to your point, I mean, I know this is a very long-winded answer to your question, but how, um, I think it's another one where when you look at the literature of what's being taught or the workshops, there's a lot of inspirational sort of fluffy stuff that people say, you know, just follow your gut and just, you know, 
be creative. And this and that. Uh, at the end of the day, though, it's the same, you know, wide eyed, you know, workshop person in the street who's like going in the street and not knowing what to do next. You know, like I can like imagine my own students like after a fluffy lecture about like be yourself and then they go out and they're like they don't know what to do. So instead, what I provide people is those that set of criteria with um a method between each one. Here's how you make design work. Here's how you know if a photo is going to work design-wise. Here's how you know how a photo is going to work with the information and storytelling side. Here's how you know if it's a moment or it's not a moment or it's before the moment. So I, this is all built into that methodology to figure out what makes a, a, a great shot. But at the end of the day, I think the guiding light at the end of the tunnel is make something that people aren't used to seeing that that is that will stop them in their tracks that that's different from what they're uh, used to seeing what, what i'm wondering about this is isn't it kind of like seasonal because like mm, let me explain uh when you when you focus on things people are not seeing that often that right. usually happened in the history right because i suppose that the rule of thirds was at some point of the history, a new rule, right? And then people were like, okay, if we put this on that, that's something nobody does. And then uh, right. if I just say, okay, so I'm gonna shoot everything from the ground level, it kind of feels like a lot of things coming in the loop that people were not doing and are doing now and will not be doing later and it keeps evolving but i i don't think you know because the rule of thirds was something people used to do before and now some people have sort of evolved that into something else it doesn't mean that it's not good still so i'll give you the example with my latest latest project which is again it's like not really street photography anymore it might be more in the landscape and i'm, I'm not exactly sure what to call it uh, for people who are curious, if you look at my latest Instagrams or, or Facebook, you, you'll see. So for the for the pictures that I'm taking in this ghost town, you know, that have reflections layered and so on, um, I might be using, I'm actually using the rule of thirds all the time. And I'm using other very obvious, you know, things that, that are, you know, not inventions at all. Like they're just completely, I'm going completely textbook on some of the compositional aspects of these. But... I'm adding an ingredient that people haven't seen before, which is to shoot reflections that are layered without any context. And the key here is I have, there's no frame of a window. I'm not providing the viewer a frame of the window so they know what they're looking at. I'm confusing them on purpose a little bit. So it's that's a little bit of an innovation that I've kind of baked into this project, but I'm also using a lot of very tried and true techniques you know, as part of it. So it doesn't, so my point is you don't have to innovate on everything. <laughs> you can, you can use some things and then add your own little, you know, flavor to it and, and, and make something new with that, that people haven't seen. Not every, I think if everything is new and you're not using the rule of third and you're not doing it, then it will be just too out there, you know, for people to actually grab onto like they'll look at it and they'll be like what what the hell is this and they'll move so, on to the next picture 
So you think yeah. like the things like the Gestalt psychology, like the dynamic symmetry and figure to ground relationship and stuff, the golden ratio and stuff, those still work? Absolutely. Yeah, all these things work. I think it's great to just experiment with each one of these. And I, I know I sound like a broken record, but see what feels good. <laughs> see you love um golden ratio and you know you really gravitate to that or you love uh, uh figure to ground you love having very strong contrast between your subjects in the background and having subjects that pop and so on like see what feels good see what you love doing not necessarily because alex webb does it or because some other person does it just it feels good to you and that's how you find that style that you just follow your your heart at the end of the day. I know that sounds fluffy and I was <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm contradicting myself. No, but it, I, I, at the end of the day, I think it's good to try all these techniques. Um, it's really you, you, it's, I, it's like the, you know, painters like back in the day would copy, you know, for like the whole school was copy this artist copy that artist copy this copy that i think it's good to do as a as a training exercise and try all the those techniques that have been innovated by people before you and it's and then you you get to innovate on top of that you know once you master all the other stuff so um i think it's the same with cooking i like cooking and i'll do a recipe two or three times and then i get bored and i'm like i wonder what had happens if you add garlic to this so i wonder what happened you know that's when you so feel that's free the to point sort of when create. you start leaving the rules or kind of like adapting them to your style i guess exactly exactly i think that's but first you have to kind of try different things see what feels good and and then and then adapt it to your own yeah to to okay. to, to how, how you like to do it thank you yeah uh let's get more into well, your your personal photography What is your uh, what is your photography settings? Are you using like oh. a zone focusing because I know you're using a yeah. Leica, so like a hyper focus and stuff. Yeah, so I I do uh, so it depends on what I do. So if I do street photography, let's say in Venice Beach, uh, my settings are I'll show them to you. Hopefully we can focus on. So this yeah, is yeah. what I use. <laughs> um, and then my settings are right here. I, okay. I first first thing I do when I go out in the street is I set my distance to three meters or about 10 feet, and I set my f-stop to eight, and I have auto ISO, and I have auto speed, auto shutter speed. So that that's it. I mean, it's a very simple. That's why I love these cameras. Is just there's nothing to them. It's like you just just the basics. And and then I adapt to, you know, let's say I'm in a usually for a follow situation that actually can, might work out right out of the box. Like I'm usually about 10 feet, about F8, because I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm not going to focus very precisely. I want to be ready for a moment. And uh, yeah, but if, I, if there's a scene where, you know, the subject has to be closer or I really have to get rid of a noisy background, then, then I start playing with the f-stop and, and the distance and, and so on. But yeah, my, my default is 10 feet, three meters, f8, auto ISO, auto shutter speed. Okay. Um, it's, I mean, it, it's personal. I know Matt Stewart, uh, who's a friend now, uh, took a workshop with him a long time ago. Um, he's completely different. He shoots manual. 
uh, like manual uh, shutter speed, manual uh, aperture, and he just knows based on, you know, he changes that all the time based on he's in the shade, he'll change it, he's in the sun, he's going to change it again. He's just super aware of his shutter speed and, and f-stop uh, all the time. Uh, I, it's not, that doesn't work for me. I, I work differently. So, so I think change, at the end of the day, every, yeah. You change the setting when you, when you change the scene? When, when the scene ends or when you enter you set this when you enter the scene you set your settings and stay with that so when i when i get into the street that's the settings i use and then after i finish a scene uh where i might have tweaked something i always come back to these settings so these are my default settings and i'm i look down at my camera what what i love about the the leica is that I, I can just look down. I don't have to look through anything or look at a screen or anything. I can just look at my lens and I know exactly where I'm at. Like I look at like this. I look at the camera this way and I have all the information I need right there. I don't I don't even turn on the screen. I don't even look through the viewfinder. So um, so I, those are my that's what I go back to. But you as you said, yeah, you check the depending photos, on the do you screen. have like a picture preview after you take a shot. No, I, I don't. Um, one, it's distracting. I, I use it if, if it, there's a tricky lighting situation or I'm not quite sure of something. I'll do a couple test shots and look at them. But once I start shooting a scene, I will not look at the at the viewfinder at, at the uh, at the screen at all. And I'll, I'll let it uh, I, I won't let it uh, show me the you know, like I said it. So it's never it never comes up on its own. Um, it I mean, for one, it's less distracting. Uh, and two, I get a lot more out of, out of my battery. I can I can shoot a whole day on a on a battery almost, oh, yeah. uh, and because the battery doesn't do anything. I mean, the battery's battery's not driving the autofocus. There's no autofocus. It's not showing me the photos. It's <laughs> it's basically just driving the shutter. That's all the battery does. Because why I was asking is uh, as much as I love uh, the auto ISO and auto speed and everything, what sometimes happens to me especially when I try to uh, when I try to shoot from the ground for example the camera uh, exposes for the sky or something like that so yeah. I was wondering how do you deal with that if you set everything you know if you, if you set everything straight because if you are on the outer ISO and then you uh, point the camera to the sky you, you're gonna get everything black right if, if you're shooting during like the yeah. strong light yeah, I, I I hear you. I mean, I, it doesn't always come out exactly the way I want. You know, with the way I shoot, that's kind of. <laughs> I mean, I, I I cut corners on my settings. You okay. know, by letting the camera choose and everything, and I just know that. Well, first off, I'm I'm shooting. Uh, this is the monochrome, uh, and the dynamic range is phenomenal on this thing. So what I Except for if you lose the highlights, they are completely gone. You cannot recover highlights on this okay. camera uh, because you're only seeing in black and white. So you underexpose. No... So I underexpose uh, by about two thirds of a stop. And so, like you said, you know, if I find myself in a situation where the camera has done something I didn't want, I, I I'm always able, almost always. I mean, I can't even remember a case where I couldn't uh, correct it in post. Oh, okay. I can. I can because it's usually underexposed, um, sometimes way underexposed. Um, but this camera has a sensor that, you know, just the the blacks are so deep. I can always go and fish the details out of, of the 
of the shadow. Uh, the only problem is if it's in the highlights and it's lost, but I, the, way, the way I underexpose it almost never happens. I suppose the project you do are different, uh, at least the, the results are different than uh, when someone just goes out and shoot two times per week or three times per week, right? So do you have a schedule for that? Like wake up at 8 a.m. and go shooting and then you have lunch or not, not asking for, for that kind of stuff, but how do you force yourself to keep up with the project? Um, so, you know, I, again, I'm, I'm sorry to like bring this up again, but, but it's, um, I, I it, it's all about, it feels good. <laughs> I do projects because they feel good because I really want, you know, I, I, I want to do them because I'm, I'm passionate about the project. So that's what gets me out there. Uh, I think it, at some point I, I, frankly, I tried to do projects more to do good, you know, where I was trying to help nonprofits and things like that. And I felt like, you know, it felt good that I was helping, but I wasn't as passionate about the projects. And I was to your point, like, it's hard to get out and do it on a regular basis. So I wasn't I wasn't doing it right. So I stopped doing those for now, unless, you know, I'm asked to do something as a favor and I'll do it. But it, I don't choose those as projects necessarily because I know that unless I love what I'm doing, I'm not going to find the, you know, I'm not going to get up in the morning and, and want to do it. So working, uh, but there's a, so yeah, working under pressure does not work for you? Not forcing myself to do something. No, okay. I've never been good at that, at school or, or otherwise. Or do work you have or like otherwise. an internal clock on yourself like, well, this shouldn't take me like 10 years to finish or something like that? Um, I would say, uh, like in terms of the length of a project, like how long yeah, it should take yeah. to take. For example, when you plan to publish it, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, usually it tends to be how, uh, when I have enough material that I think, you know, I can do a really, really solid edit. So, you know, I'll give you an example for a book. Typically, you know, I like to have 60 to 65 images in the book. At the minimum, minimum 50, 55. Um, and so that doesn't mean I have to have 50 selects, uh, 50 images that I like. In order to get to 50, I have to usually shoot about 300 that I, that I really like. And then I edit that down to 50. Okay. So that it's, it's basically like distilling, you know, it's like panning for gold. You know, you're really, you, you need to start with a lot to get to a, a little that's really, really powerful that works together and so on. So typically when I work on a project, I work on the project until I feel like I have that depth, you know, of two to 300 images to pick from uh, that, that I really like, you know, I'm not talking about 300 just to total shot. I'm talking about 300 <laughs> images that I've kept as like four to five stars, you know, in my okay. light room. I'm like, okay, I really like these. And then I'll, I'll squeeze them down to, to, uh, to, to something like 50, 60 pictures. Imagine there, that's a lot of images, right? So, uh, what is your process in terms when you come back, do you edit right away or do you leave it for weekends or how do you deal with that? Yeah, it's, it's really hard. I mean, this is, a, again, I'm going back to things that I teach, but, um, often when people get well first first off i think when you get home and you look at your pictures immediately which didn't used to be possible you know it's just the age of digital that that makes it possible now um it, it's 
it's hard to keep a distance from the pictures because you, you just came back from that shoot. There might might have been a scene that where, you know, it felt really good. You connected with the people that you shot and it, it was just beautiful and you felt really good about shooting that scene. And so you're being biased by that feeling. And it's really hard to edit when you're still under that feeling. So the longer time passes after the shoot, the more that feeling of of you know emotional feeling of the shoot goes away and you're being honest with yourself about the how the pictures stand up you know for themselves so that's one thing so i tend to wait a little bit at least and it, it, even if i don't wait you know i'll be honest like sometimes i'll come back from shoots and i'm so excited i just want to see the pictures and i'll just but i'll know um, i'll be aware that i'm not completely being honest with myself looking at the pictures at that moment. So what I'll do is I will um, rate them and I will put them in a folder that syncs with my phone uh, on Lightroom. So I have like Lightroom, whatever the cloud thing. And I'll keep looking at them for the next month, maybe longer. You know, whenever I'm like in line, you know, getting coffee or you know, whenever I have a moment, instead of scrolling my, through my Instagram feed, like I'll go back. Yeah, and I'll I'll look, you know, and and I'll change the star. So I'll be like, oh, I start this five five stars, but you know what? I, it's really not growing on me. I'm getting bored of this picture. I think it's really a three star. <laughs> then I, there's another one where I'll be like, you know, I thought that was a three star, but you know, I've been showing it to a few people who really like it, and it's really also growing on me. And maybe it's more of a four star. So I, I constantly change those ratings until I feel like they're stable. Okay. So that that's kind of my, my method for, for that. Okay. And then, of course, if a book is getting published, then I'll have an editor actually look at this and have their own, you know, uh, professional opinion on that, too. Uh, yeah. Would you say that black and white is your style or is it more uh, project related? Because I heard you saying that with and correct me if I'm mistaken, with the nowhere to go, but everywhere you started with idea of having that in color. But then you thought like right. that wouldn't work. So do you think you will find project in the future that you will be like, all right, I'm doing this in color? Yeah, in fact, there's one that I'm about to start that I think will be in color. So I have another camera that I, I use uh, for, for color, obviously, because this one won't work for color. Um, yeah, I, I feel like color is important, um, especially in documentary when the information is really key, the storytelling is really key. Sometimes the story is in the colors, like it's really the colors really help tell the story. And so I don't want to deprive the viewer of that element of information. So I think for those projects, I think it's important. The reason I think the the nowhere to go but everywhere project could could have worked in color still. Um, but I decided not to go with color because it was too complicated to shoot that way. Uh, it would have it would have required um, artificial lighting. Okay. Uh, and I didn't want to bring artificial lighting into a small, cramped environment of a vehicle where I, you know, so you know, and it was already cramped with me and you know, a family of of four or five actually there, jumping around and with three young kids and everything. So I didn't want to have like lights and stuff on, on on top of that so that's why i decided not to go color um but but it could have worked great in color like there were beautiful colors in the bus the way we ended up doing it is that the in the book uh, the designer came up with the idea of having 
my black and white photos um, with interspersed through the book, uh, almost like scans of the fabrics that were in the bus and the stories uh, that like I got through interviews printed on the back of those um, scans of, of fabrics. So when you look through the book, you have those black and whites, and then you stumble upon like a little leaflet that has beautiful uh, fabric with a fabric texture. We found paper that actually had the texture of the fabric. Okay. And on the, on the, uh, on the uh, reverse side of that fabric is, uh, was like a silver that we printed the story on. And then you go back to black and white and then you stumble upon another leaflet with a different fabric. And so it's, it, it's, it was a fun way to mix color in without shooting the project in color. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah. talk, talking about style, what I, uh, what I actually found, uh, what I actually found interesting when uh, I looked through your uh, Venice Beach book is that there are few square photographs, which I assume are cropped. And one yes. vertical, which might or might not be cropped, and the rest is horizontal. So my question is: uh, Are you more horizontal photographer, if we can say yeah. this term exists? Yeah. Um, so definitely more horizontal. I, I think it's partly my my photojournalistic uh, training when I went to to that semester studying photojournalism. And is that one I, cropped? I, which, Did I guess that? Which one? It's the one with the, the guy cover. playing the guitar. I th yeah, it is. I think that this is actually a crop. I think <laughs> <Okay>. you're correct. <laughs> it, so I, I, I'm, I'm not. I, I'm. I'm not 100% sure, but I, I think it might be. Anyway, I, I don't shoot vertical very much for street, um, and part of it was my photojournalism training, where they, <laughs> it's, they kind of hammered us over with, unless you're shooting for the cover, mm -hmm. shoot horizontal. <laughs> Aren't you uh, always shooting for, for a cover as photojournalist? Well, <laughs> you are, but like the likelihood of getting the cover, so oh, yeah. like you don't want to distract yourself with like too much of the cover and not having a project. So when I shoot a pot, when I shoot, I, I think we tend to, as humans, we see horizontally. Uh -huh. So uh, unless the composition really requires that it's vertical, you know, which happens, you know, sometimes like somebody on the skateboard. You know, if you shoot it horizontal, you may not get the skateboard in the picture and then you don't know what's going on. Uh -huh. So you have some things you have to shoot vertical. But I think unless you in my view, unless you have to shoot vertical, you should be shooting horizontal okay. because in terms of publication and the way people see and exhibits and that's much more how people want to view photographs is, is horizontal. Yeah. So and about um, the square ones, did you did you shoot it with intention to make it square later or was it more like you decided in the post how do you approach changing formats when you also want to stay consistent at the same time right right yeah so i mean this was a, a decision more in in post you know when i was shooting the project i was just shooting to try to get the best moments with the best storytelling and the best design and uh so when it came to actually editing that into the book By editing, by the way, I should specify a lot of people use editing as like changing things in Photoshop. So rather selecting I'm, images. Yeah, when I when I use editing, it's the photojournalistic term of only selecting the image, not mani any manipulation or anything. It's just selecting, saying this is a pic, this is a pic. So when I'm uh, w when I pick the the pictures for the book, 
that's really when I decided, okay, yeah, this might look better cropped this way or, and I don't really have anything against cropping as long as it's not, you know, too much cropping. Like if you're, you know, I've seen people crop way too much and it's like, you should just throw that photo out and just try to do it again. But, you know, cropping a little bit on this side or that side or just, I, I think that's great. I think, to, and uh, you mentioned dynamic symmetry. Yeah. I use the dynamic symmetry grid, not so much when I shoot, but when I edit and when I process my pictures, I use that grid as an overlay in Lightroom so that, you know, if I need to crop somewhere, I know how to crop to emphasize dynamic symmetry. So, um, so I use it that way. And I think cropping is great for, for that sort of thing, um, to, 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 to have a better composition and, and as long as you don't crop too much. But to go back to the, the question about how to decide uh, how, because you know. Because you want to stay consistent, right? Yeah. So for the book, we made a decision with the designer that we were going to have, I think, three or four different formats. We had a square, vertical, horizontal, two-thirds, horizontal, five-seven. Like we, we have different aspect ratio and we were going to vary it up. Like we were, because in the book, you want to, you don't want the person to turn the pages and get bored. Okay. You want the person to feel like each time they turn a page, there's a surprise. So we played around with with that, with the, the aspect ratio and also a little bit of the placement, the layout uh, to achieve that sort of element of surprise. Uh, so, yeah. That's, that's what I that actually the, really like uh, because what, uh, what I admire you like learning about your projects is that there are a lot of people involved you you reached out to right so was it something you learned maybe uh during your previous career to rely on people who are experts in specific parts you need for your projects well you mean in terms of like making the yeah, book because, and everything because there are, yeah. there's like a list of people you collaborated with right yeah well you know i i feel like when i don't know something about you know, doing something like a, making a book, um, I, I try to associate myself with the best bookmaker. If I if I can get their attention, if they're if they're willing to work with me, and that's it's their thing. Like they've did, been doing this for years. I let them teach me how it's done, and I, I try to rely on their knowledge and I try to learn. And um, so that that's been my my approach. But you're right. I might be taking this from my business career <laughs> where I used to do the same thing. You know, you get into something new. You don't know what you're doing, but somebody else does, and you want to work with them because they're, you know, they're the people you're going to learn the most from. So and that's, you know, in the case of this publisher, Carer Verlag is the German publisher that I've published both of my books with. Uh -huh. I might publish more books with them, and I love. They're just real craftspeople. Like they just know their stuff. They're incredibly talented, um, not just like knowing how to do it, but also how to innovate. And they always push the boundaries of, of bookmaking. And I, I love that about them. If you had to do everything for your book, but one thing, who would you reach out for help with? With what? What is the most es essential thing you got help with? Oh, God, no, I don't think there's one. There's the bookmaking is so like a sequencing, printing, distribution, editing. Oh. Um, that's the most important in, in, yeah, in bookmaking. Yeah, you wouldn't be able uh, to, you know. That w I wouldn't be able to do. I mean, I think for any photographer at this point, the 
the most difficult thing might be distribution. So, and and I think also because I I'm you know I'm early in my career. I think just the reputation of a great book publisher helps. You know, get the get the word out and get press the press to actually talk about the book and so on. So I think that you know working with a really good publisher was just a reputable publisher, established publisher was was important for distribution and all the other stuff. But with having an established publisher came you know distribution, no knowledge of making the book. Uh, you know, a lot of things came with it. So, I mean, if there was one thing, I would say go <laughs> if you go with the best publisher you can. That's like um, a whole package, right? <laughs> yeah, it, it is. But I, I've also spoken to other uh, before I picked them. I, I spoke to a lot of people who had published books and had horror stories about reputable publishers that they went with and really didn't have a great time. So, again, I, I would go back to the heart you know, thing and talk to people about who they published with and whether they had a good time publishing with those publishers, whether they have a good relationship, you know, remaining with those publishers. And at the end of the day, I went with care because I've heard so many people say, Oh my God, I have the best, you know, really, I have the best relationship with them. They're great Experience. people. They know their stuff. Exactly. And, and, um, so that's, you know, that's, that's why I went with them. And to this day I have the best, you know, I have the, I, you can tell I have the best relationship <laughs> with them. And I, Unless something, you know, we don't see eye to eye on something probably budget wise or whatever, I, I, I probably will publish with them again. You know, it's once you find you know, people you love to work with, why not work with them? But with your experience uh, publishing already two books, uh, I can imagine you would probably be able to publish like self-publish uh, your book, right? Oh. This time. Yeah, pro probably. Um, I don't know that I. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've not like seriously looked into it. It's complicated to do it well, you know, mm -hmm. and I think it, even if I self published, I would still hire a designer, a professional designer for the book, you know, which would cost me, you know, some some money to, to have somebody seriously work on the design of the book. Um, You know, I'd still have to do all the ground, you know, all the work for for distribution, uh, which is, you know, can be a little complicated. Um, I'd, I'd have to do all the I'd have to probably hire somebody for the PR for, you know, which is also if if I did it myself, it's very involved, you know, complicated thing to do a lot of a lot of work and follow ups and so, so on. So do you sell more books through the publisher or through uh your website and your following at the end definitely the publisher yeah definitely okay. the publisher yeah i mean i've sold a bunch through the kickstarter and everything but uh at the end of the day if you look yeah, at I the actually total got books, the book through the kickstarter oh okay yeah yeah well thank you for for supporting the podcast early <laughs> on my um, days when, when i spent fortune on kickstarter so <laughs> <laughs> it's good i mean there's some really good books and some of them You have a hard time finding if you didn't get the Kickstarter, it's hard to find them later because once they're out, uh, sometimes they have such, a, you know, like, it, you know, the press and everything makes it sell out very quickly. So when you have the Kickstarter, you usually have the signed book, you usually have some print or something that came with it. Uh, it's a great way to get books and, and support the artists as well. So I'm glad uh, you did it and I'm sure a lot of people do it. So. <laughs> We, we appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
you published two projects uh, as for today, right? And then the Venice Beach and Nowhere to Go, but everywhere, uh, photographing the Rice family, right? So uh, mm -hmm. during the Venice Beach, you already photographed some interiors in the motor houses, right? And then uh, you wanted, you went all in in the second book, right? Because you spent it inside. What was the biggest Most challenge that came with changing the environment? Oh yeah, it's a huge. I mean, uh, it was a huge challenge. At first, I mean, I wasn't sure I was going to continue the project because it, it it's uh, well. First of all, in terms of establishing trust with people, you're talking about asking them to shoot inside their tiny little house, you know, which they live inside a vehicle. Uh, so you're an intruder. And not just you're an intruder, but you're on top of that asking them to photograph their most, you know, uh, intimate moments uh, inside, you know, their their own home. So so it took a lot of just establishing trust with people, spending time with people. So that was challenging. It's called access in photojournalism. So getting the access was challenging. And the other thing is even once you have the access. Uh, the lighting conditions, um, the how cramp, cramped the space was, um, visual variety, it's another photojournalistic term, means, you know, showing different things. Like you don't want all your photos to have that same exact background or being shot at the same distance with the same lens and the same angle. Like you want to vary it up. You want the project to be interesting and not be the same kind of photo over and over and over. So that proved really challenging in a very small environment like that with just, you know, one type, one family. <laughs> so, so that, that's, but you know, it, it, I, it's all about problem solving. So, and, and part of the fun, you know, that's again, going back to what I love doing, <laughs> I love solving problems. So it turned, I mean, it, it works out. <laughs> This was just a very hard problem to solve. And I ended up basically, you know, figuring out different ways to, to solve it, you know, just, Varying my angles, not shooting without looking through the viewfinder because the camera had to be like all the way up against the wall, a camera, uh, you know, from the, hanging from the ceiling, camera from the floor, uh, all, you know, movement, just lots of kind of ideas, looking at other people's work, getting ideas, trying different things. And talking yeah, about variety of the shots in uh, what part of the project do you make like a shot list and how do you think about it in terms of what should be in do, do you consult it with someone someone maybe gives you like input this might be interesting take or you don't have anything during the night you should spend a night with them or something like that yeah it, it's a great point so i think shot lists are great i i highly recommend if you're doing a project you should have a shot list i i use it as a You know, sometimes you'll be like in the shower and you'll think, oh, my God, I don't have any shot of like this situation or this. So I write it down like I on my phone. I use the notes app and I go in and I have a shot list for for each project. And I just add, you know, just a bullet point, like remember to do a, a, a night shot or, you know, remember to do this. So, uh, yeah, so I use it sort of as a reminder thing. Like a, the other way I, I use a shot list, like for more for street photography work is I'll be at a location, but it's not the right light or the, the, you know, the situation wasn't perfect, but I feel like something else like this might happen at this spot because I don't know, there's a lot of skateboarders coming through or there's a lot of, you know, people hanging out at that spot. There's a great background. I should come back there on a regular basis. 
So I add that to my shot list. I, I that location, you know, I try to like name it something that resonates with me and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll put it there. So I just, I don't forget about it. But as I get closer to the end of the project, I think that's where you were going with this, with a night shot and everything. I do look, you know, I, I start editing, I start looking at what I have and then I realize where the gaps might be. And sometimes I use the eye of an edit, you know, the editor who's going to work with me on the book. Maybe we do a, an early editing session. We're not quite ready to edit the book, but we want to see what's there and what might, where I might have gaps. And, uh, and then I make a shot list out of that. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to spend the next three months, you know, trying to get, you know, night situations. I'm going to go more, uh, go out more at night, or I'm going to go out more early morning, or I'm going to, you know, try to go on a weekend versus a weekday, or, you know, I don't have anybody, uh, you know, it's important, like food is important, but I don't have anybody eating a meal. Like I'm, I'll start making a, a shot list of, of situations that might be missing. And, and then I'll try, you know, I'm, I'm not going to like set them up by any, you know, but, but I'm, I'm going to maybe go at times where I'm most likely to catch them. Okay. Okay. You know, so with the Reese, you know, I, I would tell, I would, I would say, Hey, you know, maybe let me know when next time you guys want to grab, you know, pizza or, cause I, I know like normally they didn't have a meal that was at a set time with everyone. So like one kid would eat, you know, one time and another kid would eat two hours later and then the, you know, the mom got hungry and ate later. And so I wanted to have like one meal that they had together, which they had occasionally, but not super often. Okay. So um, I, I asked them like, you know, just let me know next time you're planning on grabbing pizza or something and I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll write, I'll, I'll write along. Yeah, exactly. And um yeah, so so you you try to or let, let me know when ne you know next time you you go out you know and and uh, plan on exploring a little bit at night and I'll tag along or whatever. So, um, but for for street it's easier because you don't have to ask permission to yeah, anybody yeah. and you're just. Good. And, um, but uh, it, yeah, shot list. Uh, the, the one last thing I want to say about shot list is don't get too. Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Specific, like you know. It, a shot list is good at guiding, but I think sometimes, you, you know, situations don't happen or you can't, you know, they're not realistic or nothing will happen there or whatever. It's, it's fine if you don't get everything in your shot list. I think it's just to, a good thing to have to kind of jog your memory if you're not sure what to do next or when to go. It's, it's a good guiding uh, tool, but uh, you shouldn't get too hung up with, with, with the shot list either. Okay. Uh I might be repeating myself with this question, but I'm wondering uh, about schedule, especially comparing those two oh, projects, yes. because I can imagine that it doesn't really matter, uh, except in, in times when it does, when there are like local events and such, uh, for the Venice Beach, when you actually go there. But with the race family, they're actually like a functioning, working, like, family right so and they might also you know the bus was able to drive away so uh, did you have like did you call them you are coming or did you just show up and said okay i'm here you can start acting like being photographed <laughs> or something like that you know what i mean no. so when i was uh, whenever i was there they knew i just what was the, i was the fly on the wall so i might chat with them and everything but they they wouldn't you know i i told the kids it was really hard with the kids like don't pose for the camera. Usually I'd need to be there for a while so that the kids would go and play and forget about me. And then I could start shooting. 
So, uh, but to go back to your question about times, uh, I, I tend to be very strategic with my shooting times. So for Venice, I know Venice is most active on the weekends and some of the most interesting characters are there because it's gentrified a lot. A lot of the interesting characters don't get to live there anymore, but they come back on the weekends. So I tend to go shoot there on the weekends, even if I have time during the week. It's usually not as productive. I'm, I might go, but I, I really focus on the weekends because that's when it's the mo that's when it's at, at its peak. So and it, te it tends to be at its peak. I noticed like in the afternoon and early evening. And I'm so scientific about go going only when it's at its peak that there's actually a webcam uh, over there's several webcams, but there's one that I like using that you can actually direct. So I go online on a website and I look at what the situation looks like. So I before going there, I mean, I don't, I don't live that far. I live, you know, maybe 20 minutes drive from Venice Beach with traffic and everything. But before I go, I will always go on the website and check what is the activity level like and is it enough for me to go out? And so I'm, I'm pretty strategic about that. There's also events and everything, and I factored that in. For the Reese family, it was more, I would text them. Uh, I would text Izzy, the, the husband, and he would say, yeah, now's a good time if you want to swing by, or no, we're busy, or, you know, or, you know the, the, the kids are still sleeping, or whatever. You know, like, I, I didn't want to impose, and so texting was a good way to just check in on them. Sometimes I would drop by and knock, and then they would tell me if it, you know, it was an okay time or not. Um, but I, I kind of knew their schedule after a while. So, um, did you stay overnight? That. I did not, but I did come in the morning when they were waking up a couple of times okay. and I was, I told them I would, like I told Izzy, <laughs> so it's I, not like I want to get a camera into your you face when you really... wake up. Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. They knew I was coming. Um, the, the, you know, it's a very small space and there's really not much room, you know, even for them to sleep. I, I mean, now they have a bigger bus actually. So now I might've been able in the current bus, I might've been able to, to sleep over, but in the old bus, there was no way unless I slept like on the, on the floor or something. Uh, but, but I didn't want to, you know, impose too much and, and you probably especially in this, how long they are going to stay at one place, because I guess when it's like motor house that they can just, you know start the engine and, and leave, right? <laughs> right, except the, the bus was stuck actually for several months. They had the the bus okay. had broken down and they couldn't, they were stuck in Did one, you do one it? spot. No, no, yeah, I, I would <laughs> no, have I'm kidding. done it. No, no, it's true. I mean, the project would have been, uh, may not have been completed had they, you know, had the bus. <laughs> like, hey, the Dodan, way it should. we kind of thinking about leaving and the, the very next day the, the bus broke. Yeah, exactly. But I, I encourage, I think, you know, for people who are listening, um, being strategic about when and where you go is really critical. This is something I teach as well in that methodology I was talking about. And even for projects like the new one that I was talking about in, in Bodhi, in that ghost town, uh, I really like clouds in my reflections. So I look out the window before going and seeing if there's enough clouds in the sky. I also don't like going on a weekend because there's too many tourists. So I try. So my my formula so far has been go on a weekday, later in the day when there's fewer people and the light is better, and when there's clouds in the sky. Okay. <laughs> so I, I have for each project I sort of have a formula of when and where to go, and I think it's important. Like there's this myth or romantic notion 
with street photography that you can just go down your the steps of your apartment or your house or whatever and go out in the street and shoot you know and and doesn't matter when doesn't matter where it's you know as long as you're out with your Leica or your you know Fuji or your Canon you, you you'll you know you it, it'll be great and okay. I, I think that's um it's a little bit too much of a romantic notion I mean it's, it sounds great and fun and everything at the end of the day if you want to be productive and get the shots that you want I think you have to be a little more strategic about where you go and when you go uh, and, and those two things, you know, there, there's a lot of considerations about depending on what you're shooting. And were there like awkward moments when you were uh, in the bus or like moments nothing was really happening and you thought like, hey, guys, please do something all the time? No, <laughs> no, 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 no. I, well, so I would never tell them to do something. But uh, there were Just you know, thinking slow about days. That. Yeah, there's not much happening yeah I, i would but the thing is it always goes back to enjoyment i enjoyed spending time with them and just kind of observing how they were living this life completely different from mine and what it's like for people like them to to live this way so um yeah i wasn't really getting bored but there are some times that i didn't shoot very much if not maybe i didn't shoot anything um i just visited and hung out And um, or sometimes I would be like, you know, today really nothing's going to happen because I don't know, she the mom has to, you know, go to the library and they have some laundry to do. And, um, you know, the kids are not even there. They're at the park or something. And I don't really uh, see anything that's interesting that I don't already have. Like sometimes I already had all these things and I was like. I don't think I can shoot anything more on these topics. So I'll just say goodbye for now and I'll just go to Venice and shoot some street photography. Uh, it's always good to have a couple of different projects going at the same time. So you have, you know, if one is kind of slow and there's not much going on, you have something to fall back on and, and be excited about. Yeah. Apart from the project you are currently working on, do you have like a dream project you would love to do, but maybe don't have time, money or location is somewhere, you know, far away not really um i'm not much of a traveling photographer i mean i i like to kind of stay close to my family and my you know just friends and so i try i tend to find projects that are close to my community where i live um i at some point i was going to cuba a few times but then i i don't know i decided it wasn't really For me, for now, I might pick it up at some point. Um, I I just en I enjoy sort of drilling into a community that's close to me and and just you know sometimes there's things that are very uh, seem very remote and and far from your own lifestyle that are right next door. You know, example the Reese family and living in their bus. Uh, I'm looking into photographing a project about a Native American tribe who um, is from the area in Mammoth, uh, near Mammoth, uh, where, where I spend half, half my time. Uh, so that's also a very different lifestyle and different history. And, uh, and then the ghost town obviously is also a whole nother, like I'm traveling without going very far. <laughs> But I think that's important to be able to do a project in depth is to have access to it, both in terms of being allowed in but also in terms of being able to go back frequently and a lot of people you know the time when they shoot is on when they're traveling so they'll go to 
Bali or they'll go to Europe or they'll go to, you know, different places and they'll take their camera and they'll shoot there. Um, at the end of the day, it's nice for travel photography. You can't really do an in-depth project that way unless you can come back or live there for an extended period of time. So the, the best way to get, go deep into a project is to do something that's close to you, even if it may not be close to you culturally or but it's close, you know, distance-wise that you can go back on a regular basis. So you think it's better to shoot with intention of like having a project in mind rather than just go around and take like, uh, I wouldn't say snapshots, but also a lot of people, you know, don't have time for committing to uh, like complex project, right? Yeah, I would say it goes back to what makes you happy. I think for some people, uh, they just love just going out in the street and just taking single shots of whatever they find interesting that day. And that's what makes them happy. I know for me, it helps to be focused on something like even a street photography project. Like right now in, in Venice, what I decided to work on is the dogs of Venice. Uh, and because uh, there's very interesting situations that I noticed with dogs and uh, and it also used to be called Dogtown historically, not because of dogs. It's just that's the nickname that that, that area got. So I want to kind of riff on that to do something about dogs in Venice. So so when I go, I specifically look for situations involving dogs right now. Um, so it helps me personally. I, I find more focus. I find, find myself more focused when I have a specific project in mind that I'm shooting for. But again, you know, I think that that's different for different people. So some some photographers I know, um, probably, I mean, including Cartier-Bresson actually, you know, would do their books and, and you know, exhibits and everything. Looking back, you know, they, they would just take random pictures of, of the street and then looking back they'd be like oh i see a theme of this or a theme of that okay. and they would do different books on different topics you based on you have like many what? many pictures right right exactly so you can edit after the fact like elliot erwitt used did a lot of books about dogs he wasn't doing a project about dogs but you know he looked at 30 40 50 years of pictures that he took and then he realized oh my god there's so many dog pictures i gotta do a dog <laughs> book or two dog do dog books or three dog books I don't know how many he did. Yeah, I think but he also said he that, it, has few pictures of cats, but nothing like not that much. So he didn't really right. made it as a project. Yeah. So, so some some photographers do it more, you know, as a retroactively, like they look at what they have and they see a pattern and they make a body of work out of that. Edit, you know, taking those pictures out of their archive. I prefer to have a project. First of all, my archive is not nearly as deep as some of these guys because I haven't been shooting professionally for as long. But second of all, I, I find myself more focused when I work on you know specific projects. So that's that's just my my way of doing it. And apart from books, uh, and you are also a Leica Academy uh, teacher, right? Do you have mm -hmm. other photography goals, such as I don't know exhibitions or you know? Uh, joining Magnum Photo or something like that? No, I, I don't want to work for, for a photo agency. I mean, as, as prestigious and I mean, I would be like 
incredibly flattered if they were to like consider. But I, it's not for me because once once you start working for an agency like that, you have to you're working on assignments and you get assigned things and you have to do what you're assigned, and it's not what I want to do. So and I'm, I don't have the pressure to do that kind of work. I want to do what I want to do. I prefer to do it not too far from where I am. I mean, it's pretty cushy in terms of the, the way I'm doing it right now. Uh, I mean, I'm working hard, but I'm working hard on things that are sort of convenient to me. And I don't necessarily want to you know, go work for an agency and do whatever they need done. Um, but uh, in terms of goals... Um, I would say, you know, having more exhibits would definitely be, you know, a, a great, you know, a great thing in the future. COVID hasn't really been, you know, my my last book, Nowhere to Go But Everywhere, came out like in the like in the very early part of the pandemic. So, you okay. know, we had several shows. I had several exhibits planned and they all got canceled. Uh, now the book launch has passed a little bit, so I don't know, you know, if we will, you know, probably get exhibited at some point, but maybe I don't have any like immediate plans. Uh, no, yeah, more exhibits would be good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody listening, if you have opportunities, I'll, I'll take you up on it. I have a great printer. I can print uh, very large, very quickly, super high quality. <laughs> oh, okay. And uh, talking about books, I know you said somewhere that uh, the project like those are more about like breaking even. But if I'm not mistaken, uh, there's already second edition of Venice Beach, right? So I guess Correct. it is actually kind of profitable, isn't it? Um, barely. I mean, it's profitable in that, you know, I did sell some prints from that. And I did, you know, some of the, my students from my workshop uh, found me through my book. So it, it's more of a really, um, you know, it's more of a prestigious sort of marketing uh, thing, I would say, from, from my work. It, and it allows me to show my work to a lot more people, you know, than, than even an exhibit. So I think it's people trying to make money from books. I don't think there's even the publishers aren't making that much money from, from books. So the, the photographers are, you know, you need to contribute some money to a book at this point. You know, when, like no one will do a book, including the most prestigious uh, publishers, unless you put up some of the money for, for so the publishing. So that's what you did and, with the Kickstarter, right? Yes, exactly. And as you mentioned, Prince, uh, How did you how did you go about that as someone who you know never sold prints? How did you uh, price yourself? How did you find how much should you charge and stuff for prints? Oh my God! Yeah, there's a I went to some classes about that and um, you know asked friends and peers. Um, yeah, I ended up basically kind of. You know, uh, developing, you know, what sizes I wanted. I mean, there's a whole bunch of criteria you have to make decisions about. And price-wise, you have to start somewhere, and you have to kind of feel out where you're, where you're at, and what you, what you should be charging for where you're at in your career. Uh, so you can't be charging, you know, what Salgado will charge for his prints because okay. you know he's. <laughs> uh, and then you don't want to be charging what the guy at the farmer's market is charging for his prints. So you have to kind of figure out somewhere in between that you want to be priced at that you feel like, you know, is is honest and is, you know, not, um, you know, looks. Yeah, you don't want to undersell or oversell yourself. And, and it's a moving target. Obviously, you know, as you evolve through your career, you want to readjust the pricing. So you, everyone you want who to is do... watching or listening, you should rather buy Dotan's prints sooner than later. What I got from <laughs> this. 
<laughs> Thank you. Well, you also want to do limited editions, you know, unless again you're Salgado or Cartier-Bresson or you know one of these guys where you can afford to do just unlimited, you know, as many as will sell, you know, is what you'll sell. My my minor edition, so I tend to have you know like three sizes, like the very big ones only come in three. So I sell three prints of that, and then it's gone. Nobody can buy it anymore. Okay. Uh, the medium size is by seven. I sell seven, and then it's gone. And then the smaller size is ten. So in total, of any photograph, I never sell more than twenty. Uh, and uh, so that's, but, but in those three different sizes. So that that's how I've decided to set it up. But there's many different mm. ways to do it. Some people do one editions of one. You know, they sell one print of one size of one photo, and that photo is no longer sellable. Or do so. like a rotation, selling like five pictures, and then the other year do like selling five different pictures or something like that. Oh, I haven't. I haven't experimented with that. When you talk about selling prints and selling the books, right? How does it work with uh, consent and rights and, uh, you know, the profit and stuff? So for the book, I mean, you get into a book contract and... um, No, I mean with the people you you, you photograph. Oh, oh, with them. No, I mean, if it's photojournalism or documentary, they're not, you know, they're not models. Okay. Uh, so if they're, if they're models, then it's a whole different different thing. But in this case, they're the subject of a of a documentary or you know a, a photo documentary, uh, and so they're not they're not getting compensated in terms of you know them participating in the project. Now I try to you know obviously it's taxing on their time and everything, so I give them some free books and I you know they're. I uh, I bought some of some art that that he was making because I liked it and because he was he, he was making those that jewelry I bought some for my wife that, you know so we have a relationship where it's not a quick pro quo like I won't you know like I'm not there there was not like a you know if if you don't buy this much from me then I won't participate like there was none of of that going on it's more like uh, a uh, you know it's it's a really it's a normal relationship and they they like the fact that they're being photographed and they they're uh, honored to be part of the work and uh, and they en- we enjoy you know spending time together and that's how that comes about and it's this- not you, you can't do these projects and say okay when the book is done i'll give you this much money and that it's not that and that those are the people who know you actually photograph them and when we talk about candid pictures like because uh, yeah. you probably know like uh, Robert Bono and the Kiss, and uh, there was like a lawsuit, that, right? And then it turned yeah. out it was staged and stuff uh, because of that. Right. They were but, actors. But yeah. if someone comes to you and say, hey, I'm in the book, I have never heard of you, and yeah. now I know, so then you start to deal with the person or? No, I mean, there's no dealing, unless it was shot in a private space. Okay. which I shouldn't be doing for a street. In the U.S., the law is that if it's in a public space in the street, you, you don't have to ask for permission and you don't have to have a, a release, so um, a model release. So there's no, you know, if they're in the, they were in the street and I took their photo, I, that's, my, that's my right. And uh, I can publish the photo in the book. Um, what I cannot do without their consent or them being compensated or them signing a, a model release, what I cannot do is uh, like have their photo used, you know, by like sell their photo to like Coca-Cola, 
okay. example, to make an ad out of. Uh, but if it's not a commercial thing where it's like they're actually appearing in an ad, it's totally uh, there's there's no problem doing that without model release. Ah, okay, I get it now. I, for the Venice, for so. For for the Reese family, I did get them to sign a, a model release because um, it's in a in their own private space. So mm -hmm. I didn't want them later to say, "Oh no, you know, I know we agreed at the time, but now we want to sue you and stuff." So I have a model release from them for that. And for the Venice book, I did one model release for the cover because I figured maybe the cover of the book might be in some ad okay. at some point. So you went so and I did found the woman and asked her. I, I yeah, I, I actually had kept in touch with her and her son and uh, so because I wanted to find out what they became and later on they actually w were evicted from their apartment so that was part of the story and, and she was fine I, with, with the uh, her photo being used right yeah absolutely yeah she was proud in fact she was it was a it was a great thing for her yeah it's a great yeah it's a great photo thank you thank you uh, that one so that one is sold out in the three the three large format prints That's uh, that one's uh, you know you were talking about how to price your work okay. that that was, so that, that's one that's sold out I can't make any more large prints of that photo uh, okay. or sell them anybody who wants that photo in the largest format would have to buy it from somebody who already have it has it uh, okay and <laughs> when we talk money wise do you think it is better to self publish a project or still go through the publisher? It's it's a tough one. I mean, it depends how big you're. If you have a huge social media following, and you don't really, you know, distribution is not going to be a problem. You're probably better off self-publishing. You know, financially, I'm talking. You know, yes. not that gonna, in terms of prestige, it's always better to go with a, a established publisher. But in terms of like pure money, like you know, making a profit off the book, if you have a big following, you should, you know, if money is the concern, then you should self-publish. I mean, you have to kind of figure out what your goal is too, because if you want to, if if this is a, a financial you know enterprise for you and you want to really make a profit and that's your most important goal, then you might make one set of decisions. But if your goal is to advance your career and you know have the prestige of a publisher behind you and get noticed by you know galleries or you know that's then that might be a different decision where money may not be as much you know the financial immediate financial benefit may not be as much of a factor so you have to decide what's important to you is it do you want to make money off the book or do you want to get more you know publicity or or, or uh, uh you know um prestige out of the book okay you know and those two are not necessarily compatible You are also a Leica Academy teacher, right? Instructor. And yeah. you use Leica M monochrome. How did this relationship yeah. begin? Um, well, uh, I started, uh, the, I mean, originally I got into Leica, my, my drug, uh, my, what do they call it? Gateway drug with Fuji. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, I, shot, I, I shot the X-Pro1 and the X-100 for a while. And one day in 2014, I want to say, I uh, so it was the very beginning of the you know Fuji X Pro One and all that stuff. One day I in Paris I rented a M9, mm -hmm. and I and the goal was to tell myself I don't need a Leica. You know <laughs> my Fuji is much better. It has more features. Uh, Leica, you know Leica is overrated. 
And I, but, but I need to t try one out for a weekend to really make the, you know, be sure about that. So I, Informed I, I decision. rented. Uh, yeah, exactly. So I, I rented one for a holiday weekend, and then on Monday when it came back to bringing it back, I was like, I'm, I'm screwed. I gotta, <laughs> my, my birthday is coming up, and I got, I gotta, I gotta get a, a Leica. So I sold all my Fuji gear. I got the, at the time I got an M9. I got the no, I got the original monochrome first. I think. God, I'm, I I don't really I don't completely remember. Anyway, um it was then it was over like I basically I stayed with like from that point on so and uh, and never went back. As a long time yeah. Leica shooter and uh Leica is quite expensive, right? What is it that compensates yeah. the high price? Uh, again, it goes back to fun and enjoyment and what will get you out. You know, I think that that's what I tell people about the, you know, there's some criteria in terms of street photography gear that's good for street photography. And that's like the whole first module of my street photography, my online uh, street masterclass. I start with the gear. There's some criteria that some things are just not good for street because they don't have X, Y or Z like they, they're not they don't lend themselves well to, to street photography. But at the end of the day, there are quite a few choices, you know, that are probably equally good, um, you know, from different brands. You know, I'm thinking like Sony and Fuji and now Nikon is getting in the game and Leica. And, and at the end of the day, it's what uh, what is fun for you to use and what erases itself enough for you. You know, because like when I think about shooting with a Leica on a project, I'm not thinking about the Leica at any, you know, like n none of the time am I shoot, you know, shooting thinking, oh, that's great. I'm shooting with Leica. I love that the camera is not there. I'm, I feel like it, there's me and my subject, the project that I'm shooting, and the camera is kind of erasing itself. Like it's just sort of like it feels like just an extension of me because it's so simple. I'm not. I told you my process, like the way I set it up, it's super simple. So I, I, I like. That's why it feels right for me, and and I, I love using it because I don't almost don't know that I'm using it. And so for other people, it will, you know, it will be another camera that that has that feeling and that feels good. And so what I recommend people do when they're not sure what's right for them is to rent, you know, rent rent. Or, or borrow, you know, a couple different cameras that you think might be good fit and then see what feels the best, you know, to you. It's not a question about the the sensor or how sharp the lens is or how, like all this stuff is kind of BS to, to me. Like you, you, I mean, the ISO, I mean, to, I mean, to some extent, like you don't want to use the camera from, you know, 2004, you know, that has like barely, any, there's a minimum, but within that minimum, there's so many different choices. I, people tend to obsess over charts and this and that, and this one is slightly sharper than this one and has less vignetting and this and that. I vignette almost all my pictures after in, in post. Okay. And not almost all, but like I often use vignetting added on. Like, so I'm happy when there's a little bit of vignetting <laughs> in the lens. I don't really care, you know? So I, I think just people over, I guess when, Instead of going out, a lot of people just stay at home looking at charts and I say, you know, go out and try it. Just see how it feels to you, not what people say online. And talking about simple, where is the line for you? Like, is the monochrome the line or can you imagine getting like MD, the one without the screen? 
Um, I like having the screen. Um, I enjoy being able to test some things sometimes, like especially this project with reflections. I need the screen because often I'm not, um, I need to compose very precisely and I don't uh, have the camera at, um, at my eye level. Like I have to raise my camera. So I need the screen. I, I couldn't, no, it's not for me. The, the, OM, the, the, the one that without the screen is not, uh, it's just not enough convenience for me. So it, it goes back to what makes you happy and what feels right to you. It's not about being a purist or having the sharpest lens or the biggest megapixel. It's it's really what, what makes you happy. Okay. Uh, having been a long time uh, monochrome user, right? Is it really better than other cameras just set to black and white? Um, to me, the, yeah, the, the files that I get out of it, I mean, I shot, I shot both. You can have, so first of all, you can have gorgeous black and whites coming out of a black and white conversions. There are two little caveats, uh, maybe th three. <laughs> One is when, when you're converting from color to black and white, you are losing uh, resolution, about half oh, really? the resolution. So it, it, which doesn't matter in most cases, it really depends. But in my case, I like to print big for exhibits you know, often up to 40 by 60 inches. So this is really big. Um, and not having the conversion really helps, you know, the pictures print better, larger. So that I, I like that. Um, the other thing is the files coming out of the monochrome. I find that the the depth, like the shadows, I can dig into the shadows even further. Like the tonal range to me, it seems better for black and white than uh than a conversion slightly better you know it's not we're not talking a huge difference and the third thing i would add to that that i like about the monochrome is the intention this is more psychological than it is gear <laughs> but when i go out with the monochrome i know i'm shooting black and white i'm not going for color because i would be going for different types of compositions and subjects and if I was shooting color. So I'm in a black and white, I'm committed to black and white when I'm going out with a monochrome. And it's a different mindset. And agreed, you know, I know what people who are listening will think, well, they'll be like, well, I can go out with my color camera and say I'm shooting black and white today and it's the same thing. And, you know, to the extent you can get yourself in that mode and commit yourself, it, but it's hard. Like there'll be this color picture you know, there'll be this opportunity for color and you'll be distracted by that because now you're like, oh, but I could do this. <laughs> this I, I know, like, there's no point. Like, I see a great color composition. I'm like, ah, that'll be for another day. I'm, I'm pursuing, you know, I'm, I'm in my black and white zone. So, um, you know, again, that one is more mental than it is, uh, you know, real, but it, it, it does help me kind of focus on, on my projects. So, um, yeah, so, but I, again, I, I wouldn't, you know, it, I would say if you sh ever shoot color, um, if you can't have, if you can only have one camera and you can shoot only, and, and you shoot some color, some black and white, you sh should not bother with the monochrome. Frankly, you can get very, you know, results that are very close, or if not, like, I don't think that anybody would be able to distinguish that, especially if you print, you know, at a reasonable size, not like giant size. You, you you'd never see the difference but um, but if you're really into black and white and most of you, what you shoot is black and white and you can have another camera for color for the occasional time you shoot color then it's yeah it's a really fun it's a really fun camera to shoot with so from technical standpoint 
There's probably no other camera that shoots DNG black and white, right? Maybe Leica Q monochrome. Right. No. Yeah. Are you tempted yeah, I by Leica Q monochrome? No. Well, what I like about the rangefinder is the rangefinder. Okay. So uh, the Q is close and it can be more of a point and shoot camera so it has like you know for travel and everything it's slightly lighter slightly smaller uh 28 is not my lens of choice you know i've I've tried shooting 28 it's really not my thing i'm really more of a 35 millimeter person so for me to buy him on uh, a uh a q or q2 and then you know constrain it to the 35 you know crop you know, it doesn't make sense. So it's not a camera that's for me, but I know a lot of, I mean, a lot of my students use the Q or the Q2 and they're very happy with it. So it's a great camera. That's so just, your uh, one I, camera, I one lens is uh, like a M10 monochrome and then what, like a Sumicron or Summilux 35? I, I have a, uh, yeah, I have a 35 Summilux on there. Uh, that's the only lens I have for this camera. I don't own. I know some people collect. You know, they have the, you know, the 21 and the 24 and the 28 and the 35, and then it goes all the way up to the 120. <laughs> I, I I only use the 35. So I have I've had other lenses and I sold them. Uh, I don't keep gear that I don't use. So um, I let other people use them. And uh, I should do so that as well. <laughs> you know, it it helps. Well, so to your point, though, you, you mentioned, you know, this is an expensive camera. It is, but and this is an expensive lens, and it is, but um, I have a lot less uh, money invested in gear that most people I know, like, because that's okay. all I use is those two things. So I don't have a series of lenses, you know, kept together, kept in a corner somewhere and a bunch of other cameras kept in a corner somewhere. This is this is it. So. Um, yeah, it's a lot for each thing, but it's like in total, it's really not, you know, compared to a lot of people, it's not that much. Okay. And, uh, my last question would be, um, for someone who is maybe thinking about making the same jump as you did into photography, uh, what would be your advice? I, I think I, I maybe know the answer because you mentioned it several times, but Yes. No, I, you know, there's a joke that I heard somebody say about um, if, if you want to make a small, uh, small fortune in wine, uh, start with a big, big fortune. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's about the same in photography. If you, you know, if, if you want to have a career in photography, um, I would say as a second career, you really um, don't want to burden yourself too much with having to make money from it at least initially, you know, you have to count that it will, it will take five to 10 years before you can, uh, you know, de make decent money unless, you know, and there's an unless you're willing to do a lot of work for hire, you know, do weddings, shoot concerts, do, uh, you know, projects that people need you to do, do some product photography, you know, but then you're going to spend a lot of time doing that and not a lot of time doing the photography that you want. Some people find the balance, but it's really hard, uh, especially if you're earning money from photography to find that balance. So um, so I would recommend, you know, it's 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 really luxurious to be able to do this without the pressure of earning a living, at least when you start. And then you get to focus on what you want to do, which is usually what 
brings the best out of your photography. Focus on what you love and, and give yourself the, the space to do that. That's, that, that would be my advice. Thank you once again for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, make sure to subscribe wherever you're listening to it. Please give this podcast a five-star rating, review, and please take a screenshot and throw it out on your Instagram stories so other people might find it as well. Come back next week because I will be talking with another interesting guest. I'm very happy you are tuning in for another episode of Podcast About Photography. Until next time.